0: If you have your Bibles tonight, uh, please turn to Hebrews um, chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 16 to start with, and one other passage as well in Hebrews, um, time permitting tonight. Let me read it for you. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As most of you know, as a result of COVID-19, there have been a shortage at times of quite a number of things, including And I list Lysol wipes, um, certain sprays, disinfectant sprays, cleaners, paper towels, water bottles, and perhaps most infamously, uh, last but not least, toilet paper. Um, All of these uh, at various times have been covered in the news and the shortages thereof. Uh, But there's another item that has been in shortage that you might not have heard about. It's not been covered to the same extent by any guests. I'm not sure if you can guess what that item is, but the answer is sympathy cards. Um, Sympathy cards, there have been, as you can already know and imagine, how many people, unfortunately, have passed away um, because of COVID-19 and because of the number of deaths in America and, of course, around the world. uh, Sympathy sympathy cards have been at a premium. Uh, One uh, owner of such a, a store that had... Uh, all kinds of cards, including sympathy cards, said that they can hardly keep up with the demand. Um, They said that normally uh, they would go through maybe two, possibly three sympathy cards a day, and now at times they're in 30-plus range of sympathy cards. Um, And they're in high demand, of course. Um, But in spite of that, um, they are still trying to keep up with them and supply them, but at times um, they are actually sold out of them. And... As I thought about and read that article, I, I, I thought, I want to propose tonight to you that sympathy, not the card alone, but sympathy itself is always in high demand and should never uh, be sold out. In other words, it should never be a commodity that commodity that we are without, especially as believers in the Church of Jesus Christ. So if you have ever seen uh, personally the impact um, from sympathy and the receiving end or have felt the joy on the giving end. You'll know exactly what I mean tonight when I'm emphasizing the importance of how sympathy plays a role in all of our relationships, especially when people are hurting and struggling as believers. And so it's not a topic uh, that you often hear discussed or hear a sermon about. In fact, this is the very first time in my uh, life in my as a pastor and all the messages i preached. I've never preached on sympathy before. And maybe this is the first time for you tonight on hearing about sympathy, Um, but it is a vital, important uh, subject, and I hope that you'll agree with me when we're done tonight. Thomas Goodwin, let me start there, um, who was an English Puritan in the 1600s, he wrote a book titled The Heart of Christ. Um, That was the original title. Actually, the original title was far longer than that. That's just the kind of abbreviated one that we get in America, Uh, but the real title, believe it or not, is this, The Heart of Christ, in Heaven, toward sinners on earth, or a treatise uh, demonstrating the gracious disposition and tender affection of Christ in his humane nature now in glory unto his members under all sorts of infirmities, either sin or misery. <laughs> you have to admit um, that is quite a, a title for a book, um, but as Puritans were known to do, um, he spent over one hundred and fifty pages talking about one topic, in fact, chiefly one verse, the verse in our paragraph, our section tonight, Hebrews 4 and verse 15. He spent an entire book talking about our, our sympathetic Savior. Uh, Thomas Goodwin and me as well, I'll join with him tonight. He wanted believers to know that Christ is just as sympathetic in heaven for you in your struggles as he was when he was on earth. Thomas Goodwin said this, Jesus' heart beats for us now as much as it ever has. And I want to leave you with that tonight because I know right now that people struggle and have been struggling for quite a while. And they wonder sometimes, and maybe you're wondering tonight, even as you're listening to me as I begin this message, um, does Jesus care? I mean, does he really care? And can he care about what I'm going through, the things I'm feeling, the sickness I've experienced, the loss, the job that I don't have, all the things that I'm Can he really sympathize? Um, can he really feel um, what's going on in my life where I am? And what can he actually or possibly even do about it? Um, it says in the verse, verse 14, if we can pick it up there together, he says, since we have a great high priest, And then this phrase, who has passed through the heavens. In the Old Testament, the high priest, um, on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, when he offered the sacrifice on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies for the sins of the entire people, including himself, um, he would have to pass through three doors, whether it was in the tabernacle or in the temple, to reach that place and make that sacrifice. There was the outer court door, uh, and then he would go through that first door. He would reach the inner court door. And he'd pass on through there. And then the last door, the final one, the most important of all, was the holy the door to the holy of holies, where the ark was, where God's glory presence, his Shekinah glory resided. And that's where he would go on in and make the atonement for the people and offer the sacrifice. So the writer of Hebrews, which I believe the Apostle Paul wrote, he's saying, We have a great high priest. Let me tell you how much greater he is, or a key word in Hebrews, how much better a high priest Jesus. He's better than the Aaronic order, the Levitical priesthood. He's far better being of the order of Melchizedek. He didn't just go through three doors on an earthly level, but he went through three heavens. He passed through the heavens, and we know there's three. There's the atmospheric heaven, there's the stellar heavens, or the ones where the sun, moon, and stars are, and then lastly is the heavens where God abides, uh, where his dwelling place is. Our Savior, our sympathetic Savior, has passed through all three of those, which is far greater, and he has accomplished for us salvation. His salvation was not something that, or sacrifice he had to give for himself, but he did this for the sins of others. And it's not something like the Levitical Code had repeated annually. Because it wasn't efficient or sufficient enough. But Jesus, the great high priest, passed through the heavens after his crucifixion and resurrection. And has, virtually is what it means, he's ascended to God's right hand. He has placed forever the blood on the eternal mercy seat and has accomplished our salvation for us. And that's why the verse says, if you look at it again, who passed through the heavens. And then Jesus, his human name, and it says the Son of God. Um, so it's not only his human name, but also his divine name, Son of God. He is the Savior. He is also the Messiah, and that makes him the mega, the high priest. And he's done what no one else could do for us. He has given us atonement and forgiveness of sins. Therefore, this little paragraph is bracketed with two what's called hortatory commands. They both begin with the little words, let us. The first phrase, let us hold fast our confession. Because Jesus has ascended to heaven and accomplished our redemption, placed the blood on the mercy seat of heaven, here's what he says, therefore, we can hold on to our confession. We can hold on to our faith in Jesus and the things that we believe about him. The word hold on or hold fast is used also in chapter uh, 6 and verse 18 where we're told to hold on to our hope. He says, here's why, here's the reason. That you, Jesus, so that you can have confidence and assurance that you have a relationship with Him, that your sins are forgiven, that you've been made right with God. Therefore, He says, don't let your suffering for Jesus, which was happening to the Christians that were receiving the letter to the Hebrews, they were starting to be persecuted, afflicted. They were starting to have to pay the cost and count the price of what it meant to follow Jesus. He says, because that's happening, You still need to have confidence. Hold on to Jesus. Here's why. Because he's holding on to you. Don't let your suffering for Jesus change your mind about holding on to Jesus. So no matter what you're going through, fast forward to 21st century, whether you're going through struggles and difficulties during COVID-19, whether they're financially related because you've lost your job, whether they're relationally related because it's been difficult um, for your family or you, you have some uncertainty going on in your marriage. Here's what he says. You need to hold on to your confession. Hold on to those things. Why? Move on to verse 15 with me. He says in the text, see the little word F-O-R-4 there? Here's the reason why. That Jesus, as our high priest, ascended to heaven, and he's the son of God, and he has, here's why you can hold on to your confession. You know why? Because it says, for he, the Bible says in verse, for we do not have a high priest, double negative, we do not have who is unable, two knots. It's a, the strongest way that you could say something negatively. He says, because we have a high priest that although he was on earth when he accomplished all those things and sympathized, see, he's gone to heaven and he's still sympathetic. He has not lost the capacity or the ability to. To suffer with us. See, that's what the word, the compound Greek word, sympathy, sim is with. He suffers with us. He feels what we feel. He knows what we know. He hurts in the way that we hurt, he says. So don't let go of Jesus because you're suffering for him. Here's why. Because he is not a detached deity, he is not some distant God that has been removed to heaven and no longer can understand or no longer can feel what we go through. One of my favorite verses, even though it's only two verses, two words, I should say, and you know it, it's the easiest in the Bible to memorize, John eleven thirty-five, 35, Jesus wept. We, we are almost all of us familiar with the context of those two words and the raising of Lazarus from the dead. I often wonder why a French printer back in the 1600s um, when, he, when chapter divisions and verse divisions were implemented into the scriptures and, and then printing became uh, possible and we, we implemented those divisions and those distinctions. Why is it that that French printer um, singled out these two words to be a verse all by themselves? I mean obviously there's only rejoice evermore there aren't very many verses in the entire Bible that only have two complete words. As the entire verse but this was one of them one out of two i think And, and here it is jesus wept i mean the one who was equal with god the father the one who created the universe by his own word the bible says cried he cried uh jesus deliberately waited knowing lazarus had died And four days later, when they'd almost given up hope that he was even going to show up, Jesus shows up, and and listen, he knows that although everyone is filled with grief and sorrow, that he's going to do something so spectacular that has never been done. He's going to raise Lazarus, his friend, from the dead, and all the grief and sorrow that people are feeling, he's going to resolve it. I mean, just with a very few words and, and raised la and it's all gonna go away, and everything that was broken is gonna be restored. And knowing all of that, here's what the Bible says, he still wept. Jesus wept. He was gonna turn tears into joy. He was gonna change all the source of their problems and their grief and worry and, and concern. He was gonna rectify all of it. But he still chose tears. In the Old Testament, the Bible gives us a really good indication of why that's so. Or even better, how that is so. Isaiah 53 verses 3 and 4, talking about the suffering servant, says this of Jesus, who fulfilled this prophecy. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Uh, It was made by God the Father to be this way. Jesus would endure grief. He would know pain. He would be familiar with sorrow. He would know what it means to cry. He would know all the things that we know. But he would know them in a way that we could never know. He would know them in a greater way because he endured them all. Verse 4 in Isaiah 53 says that he bears our griefs our sicknesses he carries our pains and our sorrows he carries them they were not his they were ours but they became his the bible tells us In, in such a way that he carried this incredible amount of grief of his own all the things that he carried carried all the rejection the pain suffering physically spiritually all that he endured on the cross he was able to endure all of that grief without ever minimizing ours see at the same time in fact in the old king james when you read hebrews four fifteen, i believe it reads this he was touched by our infirmities yeah it could mean sicknesses but it usually means weaknesses of all kinds shapes and sizes and it says he was touched by it and the word touched in the king james is the word we're talking about it's the word sympathy he was affected with the same feeling that we feel this is in my opinion at least greatly contrasted to someone who might just feel pity or feel bad for somebody who's going through a hard time this isn't just someone uh, um, on the inside looking out at you and seeing that you're going through a difficult time and wish it was different from you. No, this is Jesus feeling the same emotions as the person who's suffering. Do you remember when then the uh, Saul of Tarsus, but eventually became uh, the apostle Paul in Acts chapter nine, he's going down the Damascus road, the li- the blinding light from heaven knocks him off the animal which he was riding. And the conversation a very few lines we has with Jesus. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To get the identification Jesus has, he's threatening and torturing, and imprisoning, and even having killed, he's going to kill Stephen in chapter seven. See, and he's on a rampage. And Jesus says, no, no, not that you're persecuting them, although that was true. Jesus said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. See, Jesus was in heaven, and he wasn't some distant deity who didn't understand the first follower's pain. He, he, he understood, he felt what it meant to be hounded. He felt what it meant to be taken from your home and your loved ones. He felt what it was like to follow Jesus and be afraid at the same time. He knew all that. He felt those things. A very similar verse you can refer to in the very book of Hebrews, chapter 13 and verse 3. Uh, the voice of the martyrs, I think, use this often as one of their theme verses. It says, remember those who are in chains as if you are chained with them. See, that's what sympathy is. Suffer with people. People who are in chains, in prison for the cause of Christ Don't just feel bad for them. Don't just say, oh, isn't that too bad? Or or, well, just don't pray for their release, although that's great. He says, listen, you act as if, you feel as if, you live as if, in some way, shape, or form, as if you are chained with them, as if you're going through the very same thing. That's what Jesus did and does. He feels the loneliness. He feels the heartache, the frustration, the grief that we do. He is a God who understands what grief is. He understands how it is to struggle day after day after day. And the reason is, is because, as Thomas Goodwin would want us to know, it's just it's important to realize that Jesus not only understood at Lazarus's tomb, he not understood what we go through when he was on earth, but he equally, if not more, has sympathy for us in heaven where he is now. So our verse goes on, if I could say back in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable, and the word means to have power. It's not that he's lost his ability because he's in heaven and no longer on earth to feel what we're going through. It's not that he has some sort of situational sympathy that now that he's not in the the same situation he once was, that he doesn't feel anymore. No he feels our weaknesses. One writer I read said, "Jesus is not the Docetic man. you know what the docetic it 's a heresy meaning that jesus 's physical body was just an illusion it wasn 't really real he didn 't really have physical weaknesses or a body to endure or have to go through things, which it 's a heresy and the reason he had a body and Hebrew says, "You gave me a body, you formed one for me is the reason is God wanted him." as jesus to be able to sympathize with us to understand what we go through he could feel he knows what it means to be wounded to be hurt and not just emotionally but physically he knows what it means to have nails in his hands to be tortured to be shamed publicly for being crucified without clothes on he he knows and the other doctrine this really uh, approaches is the impassibility of god um used to be that a lot of theologians thought that God really doesn't have any emotions, that he's impassable, that he's not really impacted or affected emotionally by the things that happen on earth, even to God's people. Um, but you can read numbers of scriptures to disprove that quite a way. One in particular being um, Matthew 25 and verses 35 and following. You remember the verses that Jesus says in his Olivet Discourse where they said, he said, listen, when you... Uh, fed the hungry, who were people who were hungry, and when they were thirsty, you gave them something to drink. And when they needed clothes, you gave them clothes. And when they were sick, you came and visited them. And then then when they were in prison, it says, you came and helped them, basically. And they said to him, Lord, when did we see you do all of these various things? He says this, he says, when you did it unto the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. And then on the other side, when did we not? When did we not see you and not help you? We didn't give you the food and the drink and the clothes and the shelter and the help you needed. When you were, when did we not do this? He said, "Here's why. When you didn't do it to the least of these, my brethren, you didn't do it to me." See, he feels. He felt those things on earth. He still feels our hunger, our thirst, our desires. The temptations, the betrayals, the rejection, being tired, weak, thinking that you can't go on another day. I don't know how I'm going to face this problem, this anxiety, this worry, this person, the sorrow, the grief, the loneliness. Jesus says constantly on earth and heaven for eternity, I have solidarity with my people. What you go through is done to me. He goes, I feel it, but with this caveat, without sin, yet without sin. I think you're going to agree with me on this because I know it's true of me and I'm sure it's common to almost everybody. And that is sin always restrains my sympathy. I wish I could tell you as your pastor that I'm always as sympathetic toward people. I always feel what they feel. I'm always understanding. I'm always patient. And I I wish I could. And I'm always working on it. At least I think I am. Trying to be less selfish, less self-absorbed. Uh, which limits my sympathy. I don't know if you've ever had that conundrum where you've ever felt like, wow, I just get so wrapped up in my own agenda, my own schedule, my own busyness, all the things going on in my life, I feel like I'm up to here. And sometimes I tune people out. Do you? I mean, I really, I I, I maybe even token sympathy, but I don't really have the deep sympathy that has an attitude and an action with it. And um, maybe you said, I've been too busy, Pastor Walker. I'm, I'm too busy sometimes with my own stuff uh, to sympathize with my kids and their childish problems or their childish issues that they face or the mistakes that they make. I get so frustrated because they do the same thing over and over again. Not, never, you know, not thinking that I was a kid and I did all those things. And you know, as growing up, all the things our kids do, most of the things that we've done as well. And you think that we could sympathize because we've gone through those things, right? But often we're too, too busy too selfish to think about our kids and sympathize with what they're facing and spend time with them and, and talk with them and feel what they feel and know what they're going through. I'm too selfish sometimes. Have you ever said it? Too selfish to care about the struggles my spouse feels, the things that they're going through that are far different than mine. And I feel like mine are really important and monumental, up here, superior in some ways. But and you think you're Maybe at times your spouse's, their troubles, or, you know, you know, what could your problems really be? Can you compare with this? And, and sometimes we just overlook them, we, are, we think they're trite, and, and you know what, we, because we're so selfish, and we don't face the same things, they're not really critical to us. And we limit our sympathy because of our self. We're some self-absorbed sometimes that we don't care about, not like we should, our non-white in our, my case, brothers and sisters in Christ who suffer through, at times, some of the consequences of racism that is rampant and is deeply rooted in America um, in, in our culture. And sometimes, even at times, even with people that we know and um, that are believers. And, and we don't sympathize with, we don't suffer with them. Uh, we don't feel what they're going, we don't take the time to understand where they're coming from and Jesus the bible says practiced what i call unrestrained sympathy unfettered compassion i mean sinlessness did it never made him less sympathetic sinlessness made him more sympathetic some people said well he was never sinned. So how could he possibly really know what I'm going through? How can he really help me? Because he never gave, exactly, he never gave in. He never gave in to selfishness. He never gave in to the temptations of sin and to quit and to throw on the towel and wave. The, he never gave in to those. He never gave in to being self-absorbed, to putting himself first above other people. He never let his schedule and all the other things that we use as, as, as reasons and excuses uh, for our lack of he never gave in, he, he never gave in to any temptation to sin, he never gave in, he rejected those temptations, he always resisted those desires so he knows what it 's like because 24 seven 365 for his entire earthly life, he never did those things that limit our sympathy so he can tell you what it 's like to live a life without ceasing of constantly thinking of God and others before himself. Charles Spurgeon, in light of this verse, said this, It takes perfection to totally lay aside self and fully relate to the weaknesses of others. It does. Jesus is the absolute perfect example of what a sympathetic life looks like. He is never too busy um, with running the universe to take time to hear my prayers and yours. He's never too self-absorbed. With all that he went through on the cross and all that he, he, he's on the cross dying a torturous, shameful, God forsaken, cursed, criminalistic death. And while he's going through all of that, and if anyone had the right to think only about himself, not Jesus, he is sympathetic to the very people who are crucifying him. I mean, it blows my mind that he could have such sympathy. He says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. I mean, he is feeling what they are going through and what it's going to cost them. He's thinking to the degree of of others, to that degree, sympathy of our Savior. You know what this means, don't you? The upshot of it is that this means that as a Christian, you can really never say, nobody understands me. You, You really can't say that because Jesus understands He's been there in all of those categories. He's been there and back, and he's done it without sin. He never faced a a, a situation or a person where sympathy would be required or the right thing to do and, and refused to do it. He, he never had that situation. You can never say, because we have a high priest who is sympathetic, that I have nowhere to go and I have absolutely nowhere to turn. Those words for the Christian should never come out of our mouth. In fact... He addresses that very issue in the next verse, in verse 16. He says this, Let us then, see the little bracket? The first little uh, command was, he said, let us hold our confession. And and as a result of Jesus being our high priest and what he's accomplished uh, in our salvation, and because he is a sympathetic high priest and knows all about us and understands our feeling and our pain, all of that, he says, here's the upshot of that, Ready? You should come boldly with great confidence, is the word. You should come with great confidence to the throne of grace so that you can find mercy and grace to help in time of need, he says. The word confidence is used all over. It means assurance that I don't lack it. I I come to God in prayer and here's the confidence that he knows when I come to him in my pain and here's what I've lost, here's what I'm going through. Whatever that is in your life tonight, have confidence because Jesus is in heaven and he has all the power and all the ability as the sovereign God at the right hand to handle any problem you face. Not only can he handle it, but he can feel it. And he knows exactly what you're going through. He says, on that basis, here's what you do. Pray. You draw near to the throne of grace. Because, as I said before, Jesus is not a distant deity. He is not a God that you have to coerce, manipulate, try to twist his argumentation to try to get him to be persuaded that the things that you're asking for are the right things to do. That's not how he is. In the, in the Old Testament, when you came into the throne room, if you came unbidden, if the king held out his scepter, you could speak and ask for what you needed. But if you didn't hold out his scepter to you, you would be executed immediately. And here's what Jesus says. Because I passed through the heavens and I'm a sympathetic high priest. See, you can come to the throne of grace. You can come into my holy presence. And you could ask me anything. You can talk to me anytime, he says. And I'm always going to hold the scepter out. You always have an audience with God. And I know there are caveats about harboring sin in your heart. And I know that he's only going to answer things according to his will. And his comm- I know all those. But here's the thing. Here's what he says. Come to me. Pray to me. Come with confidence, he says, because I love you and there's a throne of, not a throne of wrath and, and not any longer for you because of what Jesus has done, a throne of judgment, but a throne of grace. It's, it's a throne of grace that distributes grace. See what he said? Throne of grace to help or find mercy and grace. God doesn't just pretend that you can come in the door, but once you get into his presence and start talking to him, then he's going to really hand it to you. That's not what our sympathetic God does. Now, you can find, discover, mercy. Mercy is not giving you what you do deserve. Grace is giving you, or I should say, giving you what you don't deserve. You can find them both there. Undeserved sympathy. When you come to God because he's sympathetic, you're not coming because somehow you deserve it, not because you've earned it. It's not because you're more worthy than anybody else. That no, we come on his merits. In fact, if I can quote a verse for you, actually, I'll just read it. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18 says this, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able. Same word used in the other verse. He has the power and ability to help. And it's the same word help also and used in chapter 4 to find help in time of need. It's the same. It's actually the word. Actually, means to help someone who has a need. He helps those who are being tempted. He wants you to come to him when you're struggling. He wants you to come to him when you're tempted. When you're facing things that you don't think that you can handle on your own. Here's what he said: You come to me. You know why? Because I faced impossible situations. I faced things that cost everything. I know what it's like, and I can give you what you need. I can help you. The word actually. It's also used in Acts 27, 17 to put chains or wires or, or things to undergird a, a ship to give it support from underneath. So what is sympathy? It's being beside someone when they really need you. It's being behind someone. you got their back. It's being beneath someone to give them the support that they need in the most difficult days, in the dark days of their life. Sympathy is more than a, a feeling bad for someone. It's doing good for someone. Sympathy is more than just hearing people. It's actually helping people. It's not just an attitude. It's an action. It's more than just saying supportive words. It's doing supportive works. Um, when I think of sympathy suffering with someone, being there to support them, be right next to them. I think of a picture, and I looked it up again today on the internet, when Martin Luther King was having a prayer walk in a certain city in the south. Um, he had a long line of people with him, and the people in the front in particular were walking, and they were bound arm in arm. And it was Martin Luther King and some of his main guys and supporters and people that he knew, but right in the middle of it was a white guy. He had sunglasses on. I, I don't know. I've never been able to find out who he was or what his name was. Um, but here was a guy who was completely different. Here was a guy that a lot of people would say, why were they back then anyways, because of the racism going on you know here's a why, why would he do that you know why? Because he believed in that he believed in the movement he believed in, 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 in solving the problem of racism and you know what he did? He just didn't write him a letter, although that was good. He didn't just contribute money to the cause, although he may have. But what he did is he walked with him. He linked arms with him. He publicly identified with him. See, that's sympathy. Sympathy cards have their place. They certainly do. Sending flowers at a funeral, fantastic. Uh, making a meal for someone, we do it as a church. It's, it's a great thing to do. But taking the time to invest in someone personally, to sit with them, to listen to them, to feel with them, to hurt, to let them pour out their heart to you, to be there even a month later when everyone else perhaps is forgotten, or a year later when the anniversary of the loss and the tragedy has taken place again, to try to sympathize and to feel like they feel and suffer with them is often sometimes uh, something that we overlook um, there's really only two uses of sympathy in the text or of the Bible. the one, the first one is the vertical sympathy in Hebrews four fifteen. but the last couple minutes, let me have you turn to Hebrews chapter ten for the final and second use of it. it happens to be in the same book. Vertical sympathy from God to us should always translate into... Horizontal sympathy that we show between us and other Christians, in particular, or others who come into our life. the The context is, if I can read it for you, Hebrews chapter ten and verse thirty-two. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So this is going to be a a suffer with passage sympathy. Here, here's the two ways they struggled, marked off by the word sometimes. Sometimes they were publicly exposed. The word in the Greek exposed is the word we get theater from. Theater they were put on public display. People they were told to be that they were publicly, that they were Christians, and they were made fun of, mocked, and, and worse, it says, to reproach and affliction, and sometimes it meant actual physical persecution. And sometimes um, they endured that. They actually were suffering themselves. But sometimes They were partners with those who were so treated. In other words, it wasn't just that they suffered. It was that when other people suffered as a Christian too that were around them, that they became their partner. And the word is the word we get fellowship from. I mean, they were in the same family. And if it hurt you in the family, then it hurt me in the family, they would say. And then our our verse comes, verse 34, For you had compassion... That's our word, sympathy. You had sympathy on those who were in prison. Let me briefly just tell you about first century prison life. Today you get put in prison and they give you a cell, you get a bed, you get food, you get exercise, and sometimes depending on what prison you're in and what crime you committed and who maybe you are, you get a lot more than that. Far from that was the, the situation, circumstances, in first century prisons. I mean, they didn't give you anything to eat or anything to drink you had to have people who would come and bring it to you. And in doing so, they would publicly, or at least with the authorities, they would associate with you. And the authorities usually would take that to mean that they were in league with you, that they, you were uh, holding arms together, you were a part of the same cause and movement. And for Christians, that meant you had to publicly identify with Paul if he was the one in chains. then that must mean you're one of his associates, that you must be a Christian, that you might be for all this Jesus stuff. And to do that... You might get the same treatment back. I mean, you might be persecuted, thrown in prison, or even killed um, as well. So to be partners with someone, to say, let me not just feel bad for you, or let me suffer with you. Let me say, you're in prison? I feel like I'm in prison. And maybe sometimes not even just feel like it or act like it. I actually am willing to go there as well um, because of my sympathy. He goes on to say what that looks like. What does it mean when you sympathize with others horizontally? He says it's an attitude and an action. It's a feeling thing and it's a function thing. Here's what he says. You joyfully accepted. I mean, sympathy is not something we do because we have to. We don't do it begrudgingly. We don't do it because we want to look good in front of other people. uh, Because somehow, because of who we are as a Christian, or because you're a pastor or a deacon, that it's somehow expected and Of you? Here's what he said. No, joyfully. See, Jesus' sympathy is something that wells up in our heart. Why? Because it's motivated by the sympathy that he has shown to us. That's why, as a church, let me challenge you tonight. See, we should be the ones who come to funerals. When people die, have tragedies, difficulties. See, it's not just pastors. In our church, it's not. Thank God there are a lot of people who come to the funerals. And I know sometimes if they're in the middle of the day, you can't. But let me tell you this. We should feel for people. We should act on it. We should joyfully come to funerals. We should joyfully visit people in the hospital, we should joyfully check on them after they've had surgery or if they need a meal. Or it shouldn't be that I call Josie sometime to find out what the status of somebody or one of the past. No, you should know why, because we're sympathetic. Because that's what our Savior has done for us in an infinite way that we could never repay. And that should well up in our hearts, joyfully, joyfully accepted. What did they accept? The plundering of their goods, the word means plunder means to seize. In other words, because they were Christians and they identified with other Christians, it cost them. They lost their land in the first century. Read Acts 4 for yourself. People in the early church were giving away and selling their property. Barnabas was an example. He he sold his property and gave the proceeds to the offering to meet the needs of other people. But to do that was more than just selling a piece of land to get some money. No, your land was your inheritance. It was part of being Jewish. It was was part of being part of God's people. And to sell it meant that you were living for a different inheritance. See, to joyfully accept the plundering of your land and let it be confiscated by the government because you were following Jesus meant you were completely living, completely living by another framework. And can I tell you, for you and I, if we're going to get a hold of sympathy and what it means in all the cultural issues that we're facing today in the relationships and in our church and even outside of our church, we have to be a people that are so gripped by, so seized by the sympathy of Jesus for us and what he did for us and how he acted and his attitude and actions toward us that it wells up in our heart and overflows through our hands and feet. Uh, to be able to show that same kind of sympathy to other people emotional relational and even financial sympathy so ask yourself the question am i sympathetic apathetic or i hate to say it maybe just pathetic hopefully the answer is my desire is pastor walker i want to be more like jesus i want to be like my sympathetic savior